If I were to ask you, um, how do you pray, how often do you pray, why do you pray, would you, uh, would you feel guilty, would you have an answer for that? I, when I was a young boy, I realized, I was looking back on my life about my prayer life, when I was a young boy, I prayed a lot. I really did, surprisingly. I would pray for meals. Here's how I'd pray for meals. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'd pray for when I lost something. Dear St. Anthony, please come around. Something is missing. You cannot be found. If you can find it, please bring it to me. You know how happy I shall be. I would pray every night when I went to bed. Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom's God love, commits me here ever this day, be at my side, to light, to guard, to rule, to guide. Amen. Good night, Jesus. I'd pray during very serious times or funerals, or when my grandfather happened to be over for the week and he'd make me pray with him. Hail Mary, most full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Sometimes that went on really long. And then I would pray the granddaddy of them all every Sunday. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you really wanted to be serious, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, both now and forevermore. And I prayed a lot as a kid. Why did I pray? I, I had three reasons. I wrote down three reasons, because I was supposed to. You're Christian, you're supposed to pray, right? Religious, I'm supposed to pray. Second reason, I didn't want God or my grandmother to be angry at me. And number three, that's what I was taught. That's all I knew. That's how I prayed. I also had a, a little necklace with a guy on it that I'd pray too often, named after me, or I was named after him. Ironically, he really was a myth, but I won't go into that right now. But now that I know Jesus intimately, I know him in a different way, I prayed differently. I would say this, though. In some ways, I don't pray as much as I used to, sadly. Nor do I know if I'm praying right sometimes. I think all of us feel woefully neglectful when it comes to prayer. You've probably felt a lot of... When I even talk about this, some of you are like, oh boy, I feel that guilt kind of rising in my chest. And if I was to quote this verse, 1 Samuel 12, 23, it would really cause you to feel guilty. Here's what it says. God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Ouch. But when I read Paul, when I read the Apostle Paul, his prayer life is alive. And it's so much, in some ways, different than mine. And if you are honest, probably yours too. One of the reasons for this is because his motives seem to be different than even as I prayed as a kid. As a child, and sometimes even as an adult, and I think some of us would agree with this, prayer is often packaged like this. You better pray, you have to pray, how dare you not pray kind of thing. And over time, that does, that's not too compelling of a reason to prayer because there's that, you better do it. Prayer as a duty is exhausting after a while, but for Paul, it was something 
that like it, it bubbled spontaneously out of his life, like a freshwater spring constantly filling a pond. I was walking up here, uh, I parked down by the bank, and I was walking up here in the morning. It was really dark. I get here pretty early. And there was a lot of rain yesterday. And there was, was a lot of weeds, and you can hear this little river running through and bubbling brooks, a bubbling brook going on. I couldn't see it because it was dark. But I think that's what Paul's prayer life was. It just was alive. Mike Hand approaches a kid in many moments as an adult, prayers, duty, checking off a religious box. So I look good on the outside in some sense. So my grandma wouldn't be mad at me because that's what you're supposed to do as a pastor. Paul's prayer flowed from the inside. He couldn't contain it. You could say it like this. Paul was all in on his prayers. He was all in. The whole of his being was part of his prayer life, not just some canned phrase taught by him by his grandma. And so today in our study in Thessalonians, we come to one of his prayers. It's nestled right smack dab in the middle of this letter to the Thessalonians. I mean, it just comes out of nowhere because his heart is spilling out this prayer. He isn't praying like most of us where it's tacked onto a meal or before a sermon on Sunday, but it's an all-in kind of prayer. And by all-in, it en encompasses the whole of his heart, soul, strength, mind, everything. And I want to catch this kind of praying. Actually, I've been praying for it all week, that God, you change the way I pray. I want you to catch this. I think one of the purposes of sermons, one of the purposes of teaching is, yes, it's application, but more than that, if it encourages you to pray to God, then we've succeeded. Because really, who does anything? God does everything. So if prayer is the result of your life, then the sermon has succeeded. Paul's life prayed without ceasing. And so today, actually, I don't have any slides today. I don't have any slides. Normally I do because this isn't, this isn't just information today. I'm struggle, I, I struggled through this passage and I let it shine on my life to say, Chris, how do you do compared to Paul? Honestly, not too good. And I'm okay with that because I'm, I'm here to be more like Christ. I'm here to be better. So I'm going to ask you to stand, open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we're going to look at 6 through 13. So, on the title of this uh, section in our Bible, it says, Timothy's Encouraging Report. So he's giving a report. He's receiving a report back from the Thessalonians from Timothy. That's what it's all about. And here's what he says. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Some people would say the Greek says, for now we live since you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly 
night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And then now verse 11 is the actual prayer. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. That's what we're going to look at. You may be seated. I, really, you can break this down. If you look at this passage, it's broken in three parts. You can say, the relief from his past answered prayer, that's verses 6 through 9. So he's looking back on how he prayed for them, and he's relieved to hear the news. That's what 6 through 9 is back. So you can say, past, or the answered prayer. Verse 10 is his current behavior and how he prays. It's how he daily prays. And then um, verse 11 through 13 is his future requests, his future vision of what he sees and what he hopes for the people in Thessalonica. So that's from verse 11 through 13. So let's begin with relief. In the book of 1 Peter 5-7, Christians are told to cast their burdens on to Jesus because he cares for you. He cares for us. Prayer is God's avenue for relief, for emotional distress to be relieved, to let it go. Instead of being consumed by worry, Peter says, cast your burden onto him. He'll take care of it. He'll pick it up and he'll run with it. That is what Paul did all through his life and that's what we see here. Paul is, has casted a burden and um, now he's being relieved to see that Jesus answered that burden. Before we go there, what is a burden? A burden is a specific situation or circumstance which won't stop disturbing you. You think about it constantly. It fills you with anxiety. It is one that keeps you up at night or causes you to talk about it incessantly with your spouse or best friend. you ever talk about the same thing over and over and over again, that might be the burden that you have. It is that issue that causes the ulcer in your stomach to grow. In Paul's case, because he's far, far away from people that he loves, he had a burden concerning two things, their spiritual and emotional health. Proverbs 25, 25 says, there is nothing like good news from a faraway land, like it's sweet water. It's great. And so in a way, that, that's what this is about. But that proverb has the idea that until you receive the good news, your heart is weighing heavy. The reason why that good news is so sweet is because before the news comes, you're burdened. When you are far away, you could say it like this, the devil is at play, and his playground is our mind. And he prods and pokes at our emotions concerning those we love. They're not doing good. They're going to fail. They need you. Ah. He makes us fear the things we can't control. He makes us fear things we can't control. And for some people, if they can't control things, especially the things of others that they love, they are certain those things will fall apart. If I'm not involved, or if I don't have something to say, it's not going to go good. I simply call that Satan at play. 
We are so vulnerable to emotional distress when those we love are far away, we are consumed or burdened. In fact, in verse 7, it seems that compared to physical affliction, for Paul is nothing compared to the emotional burden or distress he had. Look at verse 7. He's happy. He says, for this reason, brother, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. It's as if hearing the news was, was balm to his soul, even though they're physically going through affliction. Because he's in Corinth at the time, and he was being chased and attacked by Jews, and he's saying, hey, hearing that good news was great for us, as if almost the emotional pain is heavier than the physical turmoil he's going through. And then you have verse 6, he hints at the two issues that he's burdened by. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So he's burdened about two things before he heard the news. What he's burdened about is number one, the condition of their faith. Are they hanging strong? Last week we said in chapter 3, 1 through 3, Paul said they were, he was worried that they're going to be moved because of the affliction, that they were going to be basically taken away, or they're going to be knocked off their faith because of affliction. Last week we said it was suffering can come in two ways, either flattery or battery. People will say, oh, if you just leave Christ, you're so much better than the church, or battery is, if you're going to stay with Christ, you're going to get it. And Paul's worried that they're going to lose their faith. And in verse 2, or the second reason, is Paul's worried. He said that you hope, you know, we, we're so glad that you remember us kindly. So that means he was worried that they didn't remember him kindly because there's false teachers that came in and they probably were slandering Paul. That's why he made his defense in chapter 2 saying, you remember how we acted among you. You remember how we loved you. And so he's worried about two things, that people far away from him, they're not going to hang in there following Christ, and that they're going to really lose their love for me. If you've ever been a parent or a pastor, you completely understand this. Some of you are worried about your children or loved ones who are far away from you right now. When someone you love that you've spent any amount of time pouring into their lives leaves you, you wonder, you instantly wonder, will they forget everything they were taught? <laughs> will they leave the teaching of the church because they now see Kent City and the home they are raising as some small town backwater joke? This happens all the time, especially in our progressive culture of tolerance and political correctness. When kids go to secular colleges or maybe a student that you once worked with is caught up in feminist egalitarian theory and they leave. Then they get a cool atheist professor or find culturally evolved friends. They will often look back on your small church and your home, your conservative home, and see it as a backward and repressed by the patriarchy who teach just, you know, to believe in myths and religious superstitions. And it's out there. I mean, I know kids that were in my youth group that, honestly, it just took them a year to give up faith in Christ. And they would hand in these little booklets that I had them sign out, their little devotions. A year later, they don't even know who you are anymore, as if you're almost their enemy. It's odd. And so that's what Paul's wondering. He's worried about. 
So like Paul, you pray to God for those who have left, and you pray, please, please, Lord, strengthen the faith of those whom I love. Let them not be moved from the simple gospel. This was Paul's big concern, all with the church. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, 2-4. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2-4. This is something that concerned him about the Corinthians church and how they would be moved. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2 and 4. And Paul says it like this, like he loves his people. Like he really loves them. And he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. It's almost like here he is, the officiant of the church in Christ, and he married them in a sense. I betrothed you. I, got, I, I brought you to Christ, one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to him, to Christ. But I'm afraid that after, as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's faith. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough, and that's leaving Paul's following. So he's worried about their faith and that they'll just leave. And that happens all the time. And I'm sure this is the exact same burden he carried for the Thessalonians. So while he's far away from those he loved, he sent Timothy back. That's what this whole passage is about, starting in verse 6. He sent Timothy back to check on them, to check it out. And so you can imagine, Paul is at his wooden table on his writer's desk. You know, they said he had bad eyes, so he's probably writing, you know, and thinking about the Thessalonians. And then one day, while he was praying at that table, bolting through the door is this, Timothy, out of breath, takes off his scarf, and he says to Paul with a large smile, joy in his face, brother, they've kept the faith, and they still love you. They don't think you're a liar, Paul. They miss you, and they want to have us come back and teach them some more, and that's what verse 6 is all about. But now that Timothy's come up from you and has brought us good news of your faith, and that good news is the same thing as the word we use for gospel. It's that it's that. News that changes you. Changes, flips everything on his head. Here's Paul who was worried. Now the good news has brought the darkness to the brightness of day. Brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So Timothy's report was positive. And so Paul in verse 8 expresses the relief when his emotional burdens are answered. Verse 8. For now we live. Ha! Ah, ah, can live. I'm not burdened out. It's great. If you are standing fast in the Lord, the NIV, since you are, there's some dispute on is if or since. There is nothing better than good news from a far country. There's nothing better. It is like cold water to a thirsty soul. Instantly, the oppressive smoke screen of despair that Satan has sent Paul's way is blown away by the good news, the gospel. And I'll tell you, there's, it's still true. There's nothing like getting a text from your son in college. Just got this last week. Miss you, Dad, and love you. I'm listening to your sermon with my roommate. 
was a really good one. I'm implied in there is the other one stink, Dad, but that one was good. <laughs> that was a good one, Dad. He used to fall asleep all the time. Anyhow, those are sweet words from a far country. Or from a student that once was in your ministry and they say, Pastor Chris, I, can I get a referral from you? I'm applying to be a pastor. Oh, that's nice. Or saying, could you, uh, could you send a referral to a church I am now attending? I really like it. Oh, that's great. News are continuing on in faith. I just got this on Friday from somebody in my youth group. While I'm typing this out, talk about God knows when I need it. While sitting in the morning worship, I realized how blessed I am to be a part of an amazing church who teaches truth every week. Thank you for pouring many years of truth into me. I truly feel I was given the foundation to grow, and I'm seeing it already with my job and relationships with friends and colleagues. You talk about good, sweet water to a thirsty soul. When you love someone and you're worried about them, and when you hear good news, the prayer of thanksgiving comes easy. You don't need to force it. Thanks, God. You're so good. That's what verse 9 is about. Look at verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. So the joy that is felt, the joy that comes up, results in thanksgiving. That's good and proper. New Testament language, that's the fitting thing to do is to be grateful. So that's past tense. All of that was what he's worried about. He got to the news. So now he's going to go present tense and in future. And this is, this is going to be, I would say, this is what really challenged me. So verse 10, he's going to say how he continues to pray for the same things that he used. He doesn't stop praying for those things. But something about this prayer is pretty heavy. It has cut me personally. Listen to what he says in verse 10. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face, face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So he's saying really the two things. I want to continue building your faith, so supply what is lacking. I want to see you. But it's what he says before that. We pray most earnestly, night and day. Earnest, nonstop prayer. Is he serious? Night and day? This is not a duty. This is just coming out of him. He's all in. Paul is all in. Like this consumes him. Paul is saying, and I do not think he's exaggerating, that prayer was his way of life. The closest I really ever got to this kind of praying was when I lived in Russia. Life was hard, and I lived there in fear, and I can remember praying about two, two and a half hours every morning I got up because I was scared. But I don't pray like that now. Maybe it's because I don't have the fear I once had or there's so many cool things to do to occupy time now. I can surf the web. <laughs> I can read Facebook. I can go to Buffalo Wild Wings. The options are unlimited busyness is incredible or is it that I'm just distracted 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 and again I'm just evaluating my own heart to be honest with you because I think preaching is incarnational I have a feeling you feel the same way 
What was it that motivated Paul to pray like this? So I'm going to read 11 through 13. I'm going to see if you can find it because there's, I believe there's two motivations that are lying hidden. Well, one is very obvious, but there's one that we don't see. It's not so obvious. And it's the second one I'm going to spend a little more time and I find it fascinating. And I think if we can get a hold of this, it will, I think it has the potential to change how we pray or the, it has a potential to help us be earnest and continual. So here's the prayer. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. So he wants to be to them. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So there's, I believe there's two motives for prayer which make prayer bubble out from him. And the motives are not, that's what Christians should do, pray. You must pray. They're not those kind of motives. The first motive um, is obvious. He loved these people. Look at the end of verse 12. So he's talking about how he's praying for them. They'll increase in love for one another and for all. So one another is those in the church and for all those outside the church. Increase for one another. Why? Because that's what we do for you. We love you. He loves them. That's clear in verse 11. May our God direct our way to you. He wants to be with them. We talked all about that last week, the whole idea of love. So it's obvious. He loved these people, so love drove him to pray, and love should drive us to pray. But, you know, if you think about it, and I ask this, isn't it strange that Paul would love these people so intensely? And you're like, what do you mean? Why, why would it be strange? In some sense, he barely knew them. Not only are they from another part of the world, but he only spent less than a year with them. Maybe six months, maybe seven. And yet they're always on his mind, earnestly, night and day. These people from Macedonia, they probably ate different food. They probably smelled a little bit different. They looked a little different. He couldn't stop praying for them. Always on his mind. Some of you have only loved those who live in the 20-mile radius of where you grew up because blood runs thick in families. Have you ever prayed for somebody outside of your family constantly, incessantly? Maybe somebody lived even in another country? Have you ever considered loving someone hundreds of miles away that you might have left, met for less than a year? It's, it's really kind of strange how he just loves people, like he loves people. The only thing I can figure is Paul loved God so much that he began to love other people that he barely met. God's love was poured into his heart. That's the whole idea of verse 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. So God is the one who directs the love. May the Lord make you increase. So in some ways we need to God, we need God to pour his love in our heart. Do you remember that old um oh what's that guy? Keith is it Keith Green? He poured who poured, he poured this love in my heart. Is that that song? Remember that song? Is anybody a 70s? Shar, you would know that. Where's Shar? 
Shire's a hill. Let's just go, Chris. Come on. I get in trouble for saying things, so I won't call her a hippie. She's a hippie, Bertha. She grew up with you. Isn't she a hippie? She's older than you? You're not a hippie, are you? No. Bertha is not a hippie. But Shar is, isn't she? See? She admits. She admits. I, my sister was a hippie. That's why I say that. I really have a profound love for hippies. So that's why I say that. <laughs> I do. Anyhow, Chris, stop it. All right. So God's love was poured in his heart and prayed that love would be in return poured in their heart so that they would have love for everybody in the church and those outside the church. That's to me the only thing that makes sense for how Paul could love with like this. So rare is this that he constantly prays for this. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Prays exactly the same thing. Ephesians 3, 14 and 19. So Paul's praying for the church of Ephesus. And he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So he's, he sees God as the Father over all. This is a family. He's the Father over all. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So we receive our identity from the Father. That according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your innermost being. So the Holy Spirit that would fill us so that, so if the Holy Spirit fills us, Christ is going to dwell in our hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may fill with all the fullness of God. That's amazing. It's almost like, Jared, if God's love could be an ocean, and every stalk of quill in the sky, a parchment, it wouldn't be cons- his love would never end. So believers from another country are your family because we have the same father. Paul got this and he prayed for them. Let's make it simpler. Let's take it down a notch. Believers from another town who may have black or even brown skin are your family. So pray for them. That God would pour love in their heart. That's the obvious motive. But there's another motive that he points to, and it's not so obvious. And I want you to pay close attention to this in Thessalonians. But before we get to this, I just want to ask you a question. This is an this is a, um, educational question. What language was the Old Testament written in? Lori, do you know what language was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. Give her a hand. Hebrew. Give her a hand. A little louder than that. Come on, let's be alive. Hebrew. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. After the whole of the Old Testament was written, so Malachi is the last book, they say there's 400 years from the next revelation. That would be the book of Matthew. So from Malachi to Matthew, there was 400 years. In between that, about right, almost right in the middle, there was this leader in Egypt named Ptolemy II. And he wanted to have that whole Hebrew Bible written in Greek because that was the trade language of the day. In a sense, English is the trade language of today. If you go to Germany or even if you go to Russia, people can speak English 
and you'd be surprised. During that day, in between the period of Malachi and Matthew, Greek started spreading all over the place. So this Ptolemy II of Egypt got together 70 to 72 Jewish scribes to write the Hebrew Bible in Greek, Koinonia Greek, which is common language Greek. It became known as the Septuagint, 70. 70, Septuagint, Hebrew to Greek. So when you get to Jesus' time, a lot of the Jews of that day would read the Greek translations of the Old Testament. And they would quote it. In fact, Paul does all the time. So a lot of what Paul writes in the New Testament, a lot of what he writes in the New Testament is quoted from the Greek Septuagint. And we find a passage in Thessalonians that was. And why does this matter? Because there's one word that really matters specifically to the Jews and it should to us. Jehovah in the Old Testament is the divine name of God, Yahweh. And uh, right before Jesus' time, they say the divine name was increasingly regarded as too sacred to be uttered. It was replaced vocally in a synagogue with this word Adonai, my Lord, and it was translated in the Septuagint as Kyrios, K-Y-R-I-O-S, for Yahweh, or Jehovah, or the covenant-keeping, loving, most God, most high. This is the one that met Moses, who said, I am who I am. This is the fearful God of the heavens, who commanded all the angels of glory. Why does this matter? Why is that important? Because when Paul writes about Jesus in Thessalonians, he uses that word to describe Jesus. Verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord, or Jehovah, Jesus, carry us, direct our way to you, and may the, the Lord, or Jehovah, make you increase and abound in love. And then verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before God and Father at the coming of Jehovah, Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh, the Most High God. All right, all right, I get that. Why else is that important? Because this last phrase, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, with all his saints is Hagias, with all the holy ones. This is, he's quoting directly from a passage in the Old Testament. I want to show you that passage. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. Now, why is this important? Because here's, here's my point. Paul, belie- Paul believed the scripture so much that he's praying towards that end that they will be fulfilled. And that he believes this is going to be fulfilled in his lifetime. And so because of that, he wanted to be ready and have his people ready for this moment. And I'm going to read this moment for you. And I want you to read it as if it's really going to happen. Because we say Jesus is coming back. We really do. I think a lot of us will call it the, you know, the, the hope of his return. But do you believe this is going to happen? So here's verse 5 of Zechariah 14. Here's what verse 5 says. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake, in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord, here's the quoted thing that Paul quoted. Then the Lord my God will come and with all the holy ones with him. Now there's some question or who are the holy ones. 
It seems here the way ESV has it. It's all of those who have died in Christ are going to come with Jesus when he comes back. This often, however, is quoted as angels are coming with Jesus, like powerful, big angels. There's It's split. So both are pretty important. I think both are pretty intimidating. So what he's saying is he's Paul is wait, he thinks this day is soon. Now let's read some of what happens on this day, starting in Zechariah 14.1. The question is, do, question is, do you believe this is really going to happen? Because I, I'm, my, my point is, if you believe this is really going to happen, this should motivate you, the way you live now and the way you pray for others. Listen to what it says. Verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and a city shall be taken, and a house plundered, and women raped. Half the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Jehovah, Jesus, is going to fight against the nations that have pillaged Israel, have raped Israel. Can you imagine what that's going to be like when Jesus comes to fight the nations? He's going to be kind of intimidating. Let's keep reading. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the west, east to west, by a, a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward, the other half southward. So the same place Jesus rose again to go into heaven, he's going to come back down, and his feet are going to touch, and it's going to split. And it's going to be an earthquake. And he's going to fight the nation. And it says, you shall flee, because it's going to be a bad day. And then the Lord, my God, will come and the holy ones with him. On that day, verse 6, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. It'll be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in the summers and winter. On that day, the Lord, that's Jesus, will be king over the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Verse 12 is kind of scary. And this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the people that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them. So each will seize one another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of the surrounding nations shall be collected. In a plague, verse 15, like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, whatever beasts may be in a camp. So, and so he continues on, you know, and then you get to the very end, 20 and 21. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat. Oh, Jesus is going to wreak havoc. Paul seems to be alluding to that. And he seems to be praying for the Thessalonians in light of that day. So what he's saying, he's saying, I, I want you, Thessalonians, I want you to be blameless and holy or pure. So blameless is on the outside. People don't have anything bad to say against me. And on the inside, 
I don't have anything that's separating me from God. Holy. So you are ready to be presented to Jesus when he comes again. And I, it's almost like if you believe this, you will be all in. So let's work back with logic. The day of his arrival is going to come. Paul believed it, so should you. Because of that, it should cause you to want to be holy. 1 John 3, 2, 3 says, 1 John says, when he comes, you're going to be made just like him, and therefore those who know that want to be holy as he is holy. Why would Jesus' arrival, and this is my question, why would Jesus' arrival make you want to be pure? Why would Jesus' arrival make you want to be pure? Why would that motivate you to be pure? In a sense, I don't know if it can be explained, but here I have some ideas. I think, I think it's one of those things that it's, it's like you'll say, I'm just telling you, I don't know how to explain it, but you'll want to be pure on that day when Jesus comes back. You will want to be ready. I remember one time I went to this, it was kind of like a dignitary meal, and everybody's wearing nice suits, nice ties. I had on jeans and one of my mom's rainbow ties. It just did not feel right, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't belong here. You know, it's kind of, I'm kind of embarrassed a little bit. I might have been with Ken. I think he was embarrassed for me. I'm not sure. It was at that Afton. Remember that Afton dinner when I ate the same and it got me sick? You were embarrassed. He was embarrassed. Or I was thinking of it like this. I, it's fun to read old uh, Revolutionary War accounts, but they said one of the most intimidating things for the soldiers was when General George Washington would inspect the troops. They said he was tall, he was wide, he was intimidating, and they would say some men were so scared when George Washington would inspect the troops that their knees would actually tremble because they're meeting the general of the army. And this guy was, he carried gravitas. Can you imagine meeting Jesus when John... The apostle on the island of Patmos met him. He fell on his feet, thought he's going to die. His eyes were like, like blazing fire. His legs were like burnished bronze. His lightning, his clothes were like lightning. And my question, I, I, I'm, I'm being very serious, do you really expect to meet Jesus like that? Like, do you believe he's really like that? I'm not sure we do. I think we really think Mike, I can remember when you said one of the things that changed your life is when you start realizing Jesus just is not your buddy anymore. He's just not your buddy. He's your general. He's Jehovah, Lord of hosts. I also think of, um, look at 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. 11 through 15. So Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, and in verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be manifest, and then here's the phrase, for the day will disclose it. I think that's the point. The day the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints will disclose what really you've been up to. If you've been living for him, you'll be 
I think you'll be excited to see him. I think if you're not, there will be a lot of fear and trepidation. And you know what? I didn't realize he's as great as this. And I don't know if I live my life for him like I should have. And so Paul, his motive bubbled out of him and he prayed for the saints, he prayed for everybody that they would be established, blameless and pure, waiting for him and his holy ones to come. And so if the angels, imagine Jesus coming in, you know, basically doing an inspection, but imagine angels behind them. Or if this is the holy ones re- talking about the saints, if my dad's behind him, I'd want my dad to be proud of me. That cloud of witnesses. So how did Paul pray? He prayed earnestly day and night. How often did Paul pray? Every day. Why did Paul pray? Because of love and love for Jesus, really. And so then the question is, do you? I was uh, driving in this morning, and um, early in the morning they have this guy, Jeremy Schaap, he has, a, he has really neat stories, they're sports stories, and he's interviewing this lady whose husband just died. Actually, he was a sports writer, and I, I forget what the situation was, but he got shot by an armed man who killed a number of people in his office. And she said this, she said to Jeremy, she said it was a tragedy, she goes, the tragedy is, my, son did, my husband didn't want to just be known for being a sports writer. I mean, being known to be shot by a mass killer. He wanted to be known. He wanted to be known for a sports lover, aficionado, she said. He wanted to be known as a sports aficionado. And the way he, she said it, at first it's like, man, that's courageous. But then I thought, so do I. I want to be known as a sports aficionado. I think all of us do. Ask anybody. I, I know, I'm a Michigan lover. I'm an Ohio State lover, and we get. Or I want to know. I want to be known as a. I want to be known as a music mu, uh, movie critic. Man, can I? Man, can I watch movies? Especially, you know, like Avengers. Man, am I a movie critic? I can even dress like them. I can. I can find costumes, and I can dress like them, and that shows you how I'm a serious critic. I wish somebody would want to be known as <laughs> somebody who prays. Like who's really looking forward to the coming of Christ to where they're blameless and holy. Like, it, like, like have, I hope my wife says, like, let's say I get shot. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think you want to be known as somebody who got shot. I think he wants to be known as somebody who really loved. Couldn't wait for Jesus to come back. Anybody can do, anybody can love sports and hunt and love movies. And Who loves Jesus? I mean, really. What motivates you to pray? 